if you go under groups and you search SVU pod, there we are. How do you do that one? I can't do that finger one. You got to like stick stick your finger in your cheek and then make a seal around your finger. Am I teaching how to give a blowjob or am I teaching? <laughs> and then you got to you gotta flick it a little bit. <laughs> Don't ignore the balls. Mind stepchildren. And you gotta kind of got to blow out while you're doing it. You got to get a good catch. It's like skipping a rock. Almost. Connor, there you go. I don't care about this. Oh. <laughs> this is why it takes us 10 hours to record an episode. Well, hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. I'm Gabe. I'm Tasha. We are on episode 13 of season one. Entitled is the name. The it, name is entitled. The name is entitled. Follow us on Instagram at svupod. Uh, email us at svupod at gmail.com. Twitter at svupod. Go to our website at svupod, especially heinous.com. <laughs> Join our Facebook group. Okay. Season one, episode 13, Entitled. So we open up, we're in a tunnel. There's two horse cops. Yeah. My computer auto-corrected it, and I'm like, horoscopes? I'm like, wait, no, horse cops. So <laughs> that, that threw me off the, like, right away. It was just like, I see horses, and I knew in a tunnel, and I was like, what's happening already? Yeah. And I, re- and I realized it was cops. Yeah. Like, they're having an innocuous conversation. About a George Foreman girl. <laughs> and they're, I'm like, oh, here comes the dead body. He's like, I got a good deal on eBay. One click. I guess eBay must have just come out. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> They're clip-clopping through this tunnel. They come up on a dead dude in a car. Suit jacket, no pants, fucking brains everywhere. Mm-hmm. It seemed a little graphic for NBC. What are you talking about? Everybody's dick is shot off. Like- I know, but they're not showing shot off particles of dick. There, there was brain chunks everywhere. Yeah. The way the cop seamlessly worked it into their conversation was so weird to me. Worked what in? The the dead body? Yeah, he was like, hey, lovebirds, and they're still talking about the George Foreman girl, and he's like, wait, he took his pants, too, and his brains, or whatever, and, it yeah. was, and he like, was laughing. It was super weird. Desensitized. New York cops. New York cops. On horses. So Benson and Stabler are then at the crime scene. Ooh, it's a crime scene now. There's a bunch of people. The one cop on the scene is like, buku fingerprints everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Chill out. Uh, they find an address book with blood and brains on it, and they're just like, brush past it, four o'clock, gym appointment. Then they go over and they're talking to this mom. And her two kids, yeah. I'm sorry. She's got two traumatized kids at the crime scene, and I hate to judge moms. Yeah, the car door's wide open. They're going yeah. through like- I, That's what I was going to say. I'm like, I hate to judge moms, but the dead driver's brains are in his lap. So she says that she heard a high-pitched, hollow, pop-sounding thing. Yeah, and she only heard it because she had her window open. So then this douchey- Wall Street guy. He comes up, and he's got a fucking trench coat and a slick hairdo. He's a douche. He's like, I heard a boom, not a pop. Also, I'm an annoying dickhole. Yeah. He like looks at her, too, and he's like, not a pop, like stares at her. It's like, Good okay. thing I'm here with my coat and my penis and my high-powered job <laughs> to tell you. He probably doesn't. He probably gets the guys on the floor coffee, and he's He's like, yeah. this is the only place I can be in control. Yeah. Yeah, he sucked. They're like, why didn't you call the police? And he's like, yeah, helicopters, gunshots, car alarms. Like, I'd be on the phone half my life. And they're like, cool. Thanks for your help. Yeah. Anyway, so they're at the precinct. So the victim was Dean Woodruff, 35, shot once in the back of the head with a 44. He's a salesman for fitness equipment. He has an ex-wife and two kids in upstate New York. There's no eyewitnesses, just neighbors. They all agree it was like at 2 or 2.30 in the morning. Yeah. And then Munch is like, it was overkill and it's messy because they were trying to say like maybe it was a hit of some kind. Yeah. And he's like, this person is either a wacko or super insecure because it's just too much noise and it's too messy with such a huge caliber gun. And also, it's a known makeout spot where they found the car. And Stabler, did you notice this? Hmm. Stabler's like, teenagers, dates, and co-workers and kind of like shoots a side eye to Olivia. Again, (gasps) is that a will they, won't they? Or is that him being like, yeah, you and fucking Cassidy? Oh. I don't know. Mm, I didn't but w- if it's that maybe he's fuck like fuck off and mind your business maybe, maybe he's like take note we should go talk to the co-worker whatever it's a thing go it, back yeah. and look it's such a 90s thing to be like let's friends this situation right let's Ross and Rachel this situation you guys don't need to you have so much that they don't have 
Like constantly hard nips. Okay. <laughs> that show is nothing but constantly hard nips. No, oh, <laughs> friends. Yeah. Oh, they were in. Hard nips were in. You want to talk diamond nips, Gabe? I know. I know. I remember my dad being Rachel like. Rachel diamond nips green <laughs> of the friends series. And no wonder because they were all super horned up for each other. Yeah. So then Munch is like a pro. You would like do two quick shots with the 22 and it wouldn't wake up the neighbor's baby. Mm. Yeah, the location was a prime girl spot, but the prints haven't come back yet. Right. So they're in the Emmy office. She confirms the death was because of the gunshots. Yeah. And then Stapler's like, his pants are were gone. And she's like, yeah, they're semen, but don't get too excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, it could have been just like a natural death release. Mm-hmm. Which they've never brought up before. Yeah. And that reminded me of that one time when you did that impression of Stapler and you were like, shorts. <laughs> <laughs> the way you say it. What was he saying? What's in the head and what's in the shorts? <laughs> yeah, you did it. All right. So now they're at the office of Dean Woodruff. At the gym. It's Munch and Jeffries. The boss says Dean was more faithful than his wife, which like made me want to know everything about his marriage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. What does that mean? You're quick to say that. Yeah. Ask me about my wife. Yeah. Right. I'm unhappy. Yeah. He came in early every day. He was like the lot. He was a good friend. Yeah. And the boss just thought it was great. And then all of a sudden, some oh Disney princess yeah. in the background She's was like, like bad <laughs> acting. Yeah. And, and Jeffries is like, what? Because everybody in the fucking gym heard it. Like, yeah. you're not quietly weeping in another room. You were like. She legit. I like, I swear to God, I saw her go. <laughs> And then look up at Jeffries and then look back down. So yeah, she's it was this, like the worst acting I've ever seen. And we'll never see her again mm-hmm. in a TV show or movies because of that. Right. She's she terrible. killed her career. That's why well, That's why we don't know who she is to this day. So she's. God, I really gave it to her. She's uh, a blonde, not great at crying. And yeah. she gets Jeffrey's attention. And she explained to her that it was a close knit group. She was saying that he was special. And Jeffrey's was like. Huh. And she just kind of takes note of it. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, where did this close-knit group spend their time? And she's like, we all hung out at La Bar. Thank you for saying that. Because I, I rewound it. Like, is it called, is it literally called Le Bar? La Bar. Ugh. Yeah. So Munch and Jeffries go to La Bar to talk to the bar. Don't shake your head at me. I just, no, I just hate that name. Oh, I thought you You're doing a fine said, job. I'm just saying it French. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I wonder if... Okay. No, bar isn't bar in French. (laughs) That's exactly what I was wondering. Yeah, I I don't know that for a fact. I'm going to say it confidently and then, like, retract it because I don't know. Nobody classy enough to speak French is going to listen to this. Sorry. Munch and Jeffries go to... La bar. Let's say it together. La, La bar. bar. And they're talking to the bartender. And she was immediately like, ugh, he was a schmoozy womanizer. So she was just like, oh, yeah, this woman, that woman. He was always giving his spiel, worked every time, blah, blah, blah. And then they told her that he was dead. And she felt bad because she had just seen him the night before. And it turns out he was a pretty great tipper. Then, Well, she, like, hands them the receipt immediately. Like, she just had it on her. It was so weird. Turns she, out, yeah, he used his ex- expense account to pay for, like, a shit ton of drinks. And they're like, who? Well, who was he with? She couldn't answer who he had left with and said it could have been anyone. Yeah. Just because he had like the same type. Yeah. It was like, what did she say? Like blonde, skinny, rich girls with cell phones growing out of their ears. Yeah. Or something like that. So then they go to his apartment and I guess this guy was like the super or the building manager. He says his only issue with him was he had a key issue. He like gave away way too many keys to women and then had to change the locks all the time. Yeah. So he would give away a key to a lady and then things would fizzle out with them and then he would have to have this dude change the locks. But yeah, he he paid for it. It just was like annoying because he did it a lot. And then Jeffries is dumping out files of random things, hotel Mm -hmm. matches, seashells, cocktail napkins. And I immediately was like, I'm predicting trophies of some kind. And I like my head went to this guy's a fucking serial killer. Oh God. I was just like, that's super odd. I don't, I don't know why I was like, it's like he was going to get audited by the IRS for like having hobbies. You know what I mean? Like, so Munch gets a call on his super frustrating cell phone. Oh, he can't answer it. He keeps pushing the button. Hello. Hello. Yeah. The guy that dabbles in digital enhancement can't find the answer button on his fucking phone. This is the same phone. I, my first phone I had when I, the one that used to play snake on, it was like an old Nokia. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bright green button. Yeah. This is the infomercial guy again. There's no lane. There's no lane. He's all over the road. He like presses a button and a bunch of Tupperware falls out of the (laughs) ceiling. (laughs) 
So Jeffries is like, oh my Give God. Give it to me, you Bloop. idiot. And she hands him back the thing. Turns out, blonde crier, her name's Moira Shannon, has permits for two guns. A nine millimeter and a 44. Yeah. So those are pretty like intense weapons to yeah. own. But she has no priors. So then Munch sees a photo of Dean and Moira together. So then they're back to the gym to talk to mm-hmm. her. Yup. They dated. He dumped her. And she didn't mention it last time. Yeah. But she was like, we both liked guns and that's what we had in common. And they're, she- like, they're like, do you have the gun? The 44? And she's like, no, I sold it like a year later because it was. Do you have the receipt? And she's like, whoop. No, she wasn't. <laughs> but she said she had it. She's like, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> she sold it because it's impractical. It is impractical. They're like huge and loud and dumb. Mm-hmm. You're not going to go hunting with a 44, I feel like. No, or a no. nine millimeter for crying out loud. For crying out loud. <laughs> what <are> you- <laughs> so she's like, like, I'm from upstate. <laughs> I'm like, you go apple picking? I don't know. What does that have to do with anything? Do you go apple picking and then you throw them in the air and shoot them? What <laughs> you do? Lobster we, rolls? We <laughs> skeet shoot lobster rolls. <laughs> oh, man, those are so good. So they go back to the bar and they show... Skeet shoot lobster rolls. <laughs> Dude, I would just be hanging out underneath it with my mouth open. <laughs> you get like a mouthful of buckshot, but then also... Wait, Maybe you're a not going to get... butter. You're not... <laughs> You're not going to get buckshot with the 44. I don't know anything about guns except for I hate them. They go back Back to the bar. bar. They go back to the bar. bar. And they show the nameless female bartender a photo of the office blonde. And she goes, vodka tonic, she's old news. And I'm going to side note here, as someone who spent years bartending, this woman referring to a customer as vodka tonic is the most accurate depiction I've ever seen of anyone they've shown in the service industry on this show. Like when they're like, oh, I'm in the weeds and oh, I'm so frustrated. Like that kind of stuff where it's like, oh, this is what everybody thinks a waitress is and yeah, all that. Or like her weirdly smoking, like I'm a bartender. Yeah. And a pirate. (laughs) (laughs) Her calling her vodka tonic. I'm like, ooh, I relate to that. One time I was out and I saw this dude that used to be at the bar that I worked at like every day. Mm. He was like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, hi. And he's like, you know, I am and I went I don't know your name but you drink Coors Light yeah (laughs) and he's like oh he was just as happy that I knew his drink yeah as maybe even more so happy yeah Yeah. I love a consistent drink order Mm -hmm. okay so she's annoyed with them for even showing up and making her talk to them because she's clearly busy so she's constantly working I mean remember when they came in she's like oh I saw him last night yeah you were there she noticed that he left at 11 30 and then was there in the morning she's trying to live in New York possibly chasing a dream on a bartender salary so salary I wouldn't even say salary bartenders crumpled up wad of cash at the end of the night yeah she needs to work every day yeah let's build her a backstory for the next 45 minutes maybe she maybe she was working a double probably oh my god a double as a bartender is so hard well when when does the bars close in New York it depends on the bar it's like they don't have times it depends on what the law is I don't know but like in Chicago they have like you can go out to a bar that bar closes at two there's a bar a block down the street they're like oh yeah go down to Le bar. It's open until four. So then everybody's like, all right. And then we all go down to the 4 a.m. bar. And then there'll be a 5 a.m. bar. And you just like keep going. Weird. Yeah. That's if you God. got enough Coke. That sounds <laughs> that sounds disgusting. Like yeah, watching the sun rise and being drunk. Mm-hmm. Then you're just like, I guess I'll just sleep for the rest of the day. No, then you sleep for like three hours and you wake up shaking and you have a Bloody Mary and you go get brunch. Okay, so she's annoyed because she's clearly busy. She goes through the photos of all these women that the detectives bring to show her. And she's like, her, then me, the blonde, then me, preppy little anorexic girl, then me. Yeah. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure. And they were like, uh, so what'd you do then? Why are you throwing yourself into it? Yeah. Obviously, she was annoyed with him. So it's like, oh, are we supposed to think it's the bartender? It was too early. Yeah. She points out a woman at a table at the bar who had talked to Dean and the woman he was with the night before. So she's like, go talk to them. Like they, they might hang out at the table. Yeah. Yeah. They go up to this table and the dude that this girl was with was like this entitled roidy guy. Yeah. And he like stands up really fast and he's like, what's up? Yeah. And Jeffrey's barely fingertips him on his shoulders and pushes him down. And she's like, we're here. Yeah. We're cops. But then she keeps her hands on his shoulders the entire conversation. 
conversation. Yeah. Which was a fucking power move that I loved. Yeah. I like them as partners. I do she too. She makes me like Munch more. Well, because she put she keeps him in line. Yeah. Well, she doesn't, but she checks all the bullshit that he says. Yeah. So the chick at the table recognizes him. Yeah. Okay. And she was like, oh yeah, massive packs, washboard abs. And the guy kind of like looks over at her. And she said that I called him the Willie Loman of dumbbells, which he didn't appreciate. Or he didn't get. And yeah. I'm like, I don't get it either. Yeah. So I Googled it. Yeah. Did you Google it? Yeah. Okay. Willie Loman is the fictional character in The Death of a Salesman. Look it up. I'm not going to go into it. I am. Okay. So she, so her <laughs> burn, her burn was sparksnotes.com describes him as an insecure, self-deluded traveling salesman. Mm-hmm. Willie believes wholeheartedly in the American dream of easy success and wealth, but he never achieves it. So now I'm like, oh, dude, sick burn. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Munch is like, you know who did enjoy those quadriceps? As in Just what lady quads. was with him? Ugh, Just say quads. <laughs> You're just looking That's for shit me. to hate on him. So she goes, one of the Mulroneys. And everybody's like, Can I look around like what? So they're, we're in the precinct locker room. Benson says the Melronis are a huge clan. It's the former governor Melroni's family. And there's only one daughter left named Stephanie. But they're like waspy, rich yeah. Fucking blah, blah, blah. Like a big deal, a lot of power family in New York. Yeah. So Stephanie Melroni, when she was college age, she was like a kind of like a wild child, did a lot of drunken stuff. But now she's 33 and runs some socially conscious investment group. Um, They had left a note at her place three hours earlier and left messages on her answering machine. Answering machine. And then some freaking dude walks in, the intern. <laughs> The cop intern? Yeah, I don't know, but I hated him later. Yeah, he's like, there's some big mouthpiece in your office. I tried to get him to go away. His name is Rumsey. So this is the former Governor Malroney's legal advisor. And Munch is like, think Chappaquiddick, my friends. These people don't talk unless they've got all their ducks in a row. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know what that meant the first. Well, guess what? You're gonna (laughs) think Chappaquiddick? Yeah, Chappaquiddick. Is that a name? It's a place. My chaser's on Chappaquiddick. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. (laughs) Now I'm like, I'm not understanding. (laughs) Um, So now they're in Cragen's office. His name is Patrick Rumsey, but he's there as a family friend as opposed to being their representation, which Cragen assumed. He is a set of shoulder pads over a pea coat, and I can't get past it. He's perfectly cast. Yeah. Okay. Yes, he really is. So apparently Stephanie had witnessed the attack, and he's there to help in any way he can. And I was like, yeah, sure. So he talks around her being interviewed by the police. Oh, she's going through a lot. Here's her written statement so you can have it while it's still fresh. Uh, Yeah. Cragen's like, bitch. We take our own statements. He's like, well, yeah, I mean, he was calm about it because he has to be because it's fucking Melroning clan. Yeah. But yeah, he's like, we take our own statement and he, they obviously want to talk to her. Oh, of course, when she's ready, she gets to decide when it happens. Yeah. Entitlement. Yeah. And then they go to the Melroni house. Mm. Benson and Stabler. Fucking. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the Moroni estate. Yeah. The mom walks in. Her name is fucking not Regina. Regina Malroni. Regina. I'm sure it's spelled like Regina, but she's so fancy it has to rhyme with vagina. Like, who, what is this? <laughs> and it then takes... I, wrote, I wrote, do we even need to make any jokes? Like, it's too easy. This is just her character, right? I think when I go, what is this character saying? Her name is Regina Mulroney. Well... Is this a boy named Sue situation? Because she needs to be a powerful bitch to walk through the world with a name like Regina and And not give in to the change of Regina. The easy change that it's like, actually, everybody's been pronouncing it wrong my whole life. It's Regina and then slip into that. Yeah. Do people call you Gina at bridge? (laughs) (laughs) Did they workshop like a bunch of um, rich lady sounding names, you think? I mean, probably. Every great family has a secret. It's how you spend the money that counts. Is that one of her quotes? My family's philanthropy is well documented. Go ahead. Yeah, she says uh, every time a police officer comes to her house, someone dies. Someone has died. So they have all this like history of tragedy in their family. And everybody consistently throughout is like, they've been through enough. Um, And she's seen Gone with the Wind way too many fucking times. Because she's like, she's like staring out at the window. What did she say about the plane crash? It's been five years to the day since my son went down the Dalmatian coast in the fucking. But as she like longingly stares out the window, they love a longing stare yeah she says that stephanie is her unplanned miracle child and then she's like she's the light of my life but <laughs> says it so blank staredly like it was super weird she's just full of benzos stephanie isn't there she's at a private hospital under sedation so now they're at the private hospital Benson and stabler are there the doctor says he's uneasy because it's a private hospital that's like funded by the melronis mm-hmm. stabler asks him where the clothes are from the murder and he says that she had changed yeah so they don't have the clothes they never even talk about him again he said that they treated her 
her wounds and then just sedated her. So they finally get in to talk to Stephanie, who's in a Gabe Stable robe on a fainting couch or something. A Gabe what? Stable oh, robe. Oh, okay. I thought you said Gabe Stabler robe. I was like, what? Well, I mean, I could, a Gabe Stabler staple robe. And she's on a fainting couch or something along with uh, shoulder pads and vagina. Okay, go. Yeah. So she said that she had left the bar with Dean. Every question they're asking, she's like looking at the lawyer and the mom to see if it's okay to answer. Mm-hmm. She left the bar with Dean. She had met him there. And when they were parked, he was leaning against the window of the car and made a joke about the disadvantages of bucket seats. Ew. Yeah. It seems her mom and the lawyer are making her feel uncomfortable and like not able to say what really happened. I think it's just the nature of the family. Yeah. I mean, she's not going to be like, yeah, we went there to fuck. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So she leaned in to change the radio and then the shooting occurred. She can't remember the time. A man came up real fast and it was dark. He had a gun out, black rimmed glasses, like Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly glasses, dark hair, roundish face. And Stabler asked why she didn't call the police and she just said it was awful and started crying. And they're like, get out. Yeah. Oh. And she wept. And she wept and Regina was like, thanks for coming. She didn't say it like that. That's not a good. Thank you for coming. Perfect. <laughs> Entitlement. So they're at the precinct again. Assuming that Stephanie was telling the truth, they're looking for outside motives jeffrey suggests lots and lots of women that that's a motive there's somebody that's Mm -hmm. gonna get jealous and then craigan's like well with that many girlfriends there's got to be a bunch of boyfriends so there's like jealousy the the Mm ex-wife she has two of their kids and he betrayed her the most so he sends munch and jeffrey's to do ballistics and benson and stabler to check out all the boyfriends initially they're frustrated because they're kind of at a dead end with stephanie because it's her word against the cops and the mulroney's have a shit ton of support Mm -hmm. and olivia goes to craigan ah one police plot all over you and really just like there's higher ups that are breathing down Cragen's neck right. because they're even fucking with this family like that's the kind of power that they have yeah they're in the forensic area ballistics forensics I don't know it's Munch and Jeffries so he was shot with a 44 black talon bullet a they cop st- killer yeah they stopped and then Ice T's like can I get a job <laughs> And they're like, they stopped ma- making them in 1994. Uh, I hate it- that I implied that Ice-T asked for a job. You know that they called him and they were like, we need you here, Ice. Yeah. And he was like, I'm busy. Is that? <laughs> hey, I'm busy. I'm Ice-T. <laughs> I think you have him confused with Andrew Dice Clay. Ickery dickery cop. <laughs> no. Oh, shit. Leave that in. Oh my god! I wish you could see. I wish everybody could see the little like collar pop she tried to do with her little T-shirt. Oh my god! This is why I've always loved you. I love you so much. Okay, so they stopped making the black talon bullets in '94. Munch says it because it's too recognizable. The bullet manufacturers want to be more anonymous, so they can't. Does get anyone sued. else notice how Gabe says "bullet"? It's really cute. What am I saying? How bullet? 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 You say you pronounce the "o" like "uh" instead of. Oh, bullet. bullet. I say bullet. Maybe I say it wrong. Bullet. 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 I do say it weird. You say bullet. Was this like the almonds thing? Yep. Yep. <laughs> it is. Anyways, they the bullet. Fuck. Sorry, I can't Sorry. point it out because it's going to ruin your ability to speak. <laughs> the bullet manufacturers want to be more anonymous so they can't get sued. So that's why they stopped making them. Mm-hmm. Too recognizable. Yeah. So now they're at Dean's ex-wife. Oh, they actually didn't have her name. That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) I love this lady, by the way. Yeah. She was like bummed that he was dead, but she was like, eh. Well, they're like, are you still mad? She was like, not really. She said it in such a good way. I believed her. Yeah. like That they had been married and she was like, yeah, this was irritating, but you know, that was in the past and it's it's really too bad. I'm not really mad about it anymore. Anyway, so she said the last straw for her was when a sophomore um, stopped by to return Dean's books and she was like, as hell. Yeah. She's like, bitch, I can smell his dick on your breath. (laughs) Yeah, and and then they were like, are you still mad? She's like, no, no, not really. Yeah. She said Dean's dad worked on a lumber yard and Dean helped out. And before long, he was like running the place. But nothing was ever good enough for Dean's dad. So she says that's why she thinks he chased so many women, which is really like nice. It's like that she looked into she like process- the wise. She of- processed, it, mm-hmm. processed it and was like, OK, you know. Yeah. And then Olivia said it wasn't hard for a townie to meet college girls. And Dean's nameless ex-wife. <laughs> I have this in here. Dean's nameless ex-wife said hard wasn't Dean's problem. Ha! <laughs> she didn't laugh. That was me. It was in my notes. <laughs> so then they're at Barrett University. Benson and Stabler are walking and talking to another nameless woman. And she appears to be the campus Dean? therapist, director, doctor. I don't know because oh. they never specify. So now she has no name and no specified job. Yeah. But she bullshits around. But she's very important. She is very important. Yeah. She bullshits around Dean being a ladies man or a, a Lothario in another time. AKA a dude who won't take no for an answer. And Stabes is like, cut the crap. <laughs> 
<laughs> there had been rumors about Dean and there had been some complaints from women. She spills that Stephanie Mulroney came to her, quote unquote, her words, crying rape about Dean, but nameless lady doesn't believe Stephanie Mulroney. Which is weird because you the whole time she's talking about how like date rape is a problem and blah, 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 and then doesn't believe like somebody that tells her. Yeah. So then I'm like, oh, she didn't meet him at the bar that night. She actually met him sophomore year. So, and then this woman is like, he seduced her and treated her shabbily no more, no less. This is what, this is why women don't report. Actually, I have this in the, mm. my notes. Yeah. So did Stephanie revenge kill him is what I'm thinking? Yeah. And also she makes... <laughs> You're like, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, she believes the pressure of being a Moroni is too much for Stephanie. That yeah. was like a theory that this woman had. Yeah. Benson and Stabler are back at the Moroni house. Rum Tum Tuggers. Oh. <laughs> I forgot I put that whoa. in my notes. Whoa. Because whoa, whoa. <laughs> first of all, the Moroni house, Rum Tum Tuggers. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck? <laughs> Shoulder pads. His name is <laughs> His name is Rumsey. <laughs> so Oh my god. Benson and Stabler are back at the Mulroney house. Shoulder pads is standing in front of Stephanie, intercepting questions. I can't call him Rum Tum Tugger because it's gonna fucking It's gonna be confusing. Yeah, but then explain it. Benson and Stabler are back at the Mulroney house. Rumtum Tugger is standing in front of Stephanie, <laughs> intercepting questions. I, I kind of was annoyed who's, who's with him. Rum, so I, who's Rumtum Tugger? He's, <laughs> he's shoulder pads because his name is Rumsey. <laughs> so her. Just hold on. Anyway, so Benson and Stabler are trying to talk to Stephanie, but he's Please. not letting her. Her mom is there, too, to step to Cragen and get them out of there. So they can't get any more out of Stephanie. And then Cragen is meeting with two old white dudes in an office that looks like it smells of rich mahogany. Yeah. What I assume is they are just the higher ups that are at one police plaza or whatever. Oh, okay. Right? That they referenced earlier. They seem to want Cragen to drop it, but Cragen has too much integrity and a fucking job to do. <laughs> so they're like... Blah, and they're arguing it back and forth and he's like no and they're like yeah <laughs> so he had paid for a bunch of shit like shit in the school half of the statue restorations in the park yeah and he was instrumental in getting sex crimes legislation passed so it's like nobody wants to go after him yeah except for Craig because he's got a too much integrity and a fucking job to do <laughs> He's like, we're eternally grateful. And they're like, quit it. He's yeah. important. Cragen thinks that whatever happened in college, because she had mm -hmm. taken off her sophomore year because something happened. Right. Which we're assuming Dean raped her. Yeah. She stewed in resentment for years and allowed herself to be picked up by Dean and killed him. Cragen says, she's no stranger to being in trouble. She got picked up for cocaine. Like, he said it like that. <laughs> oh, wait, he said yeah. cocaine. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the, and the guys are like, uh, for, yeah, possession. Like, this is murder. Like, chill out about the cocaine. Which I agree. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like you get in trouble for some blow in college and then it's like And then all of a sudden you're like stabbing a guy. Who in the among park. us, you know? So they're like, go to McCoy. So they go to Jack McCoy's office. Okay, so so Jack McCoy, he's a DA. DA Carmichael is also there. Cragen's pissed. He thinks that Stephanie's the shooter. And so then there's like a swell of music and McCoy stands up and they're like, are you going to do it? And he's like making false statements, luring a guy to his death for revenge. We'll go murder too. And then we'll flip her on the shooter. Yeah. He also says, hail Regina, queen of the Mulroney clan. Regina. Regina. Oh my God. Sorry. Yeah. How many times has somebody been like, Regina Mulroney? She's like, Regina. Yeah. He's all like, I'll deal with the media and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Murder too. Supreme Court, the arraignment. The lawyer was like, yes, we can continue, but can we please have her out of handcuffs? And the judge says he's a gentleman, so he'll let it happen. This is all just like little, little nods to the entitlement of yeah. these people. And I was th here, I'm thinking, I was like, great, another judge that's going to be in the hands of the, these rich people, right? She pleads not guilty. They're fighting bail. She's a flight risk. Her family had obtained an expedited passport the day before. And she has like unlimited amounts of money and the judge is like, I'm, I'm aware. And I was like, this guy is like going to fucking get her off. <laughs> <laughs> but so it sounds like the judge is totally on the side of Stephanie. Then he says, well, the lawyer is like, this is incredible or something. This is incredulable. Incre is that the word? Incredible. Incredible? Like incredible. Like this is insane. Oh. And he's like, 
I find it incredible this young woman should have so lowered the standard by which she was raised. And I find it believable she would put herself above the law. Oh, and I love this. I don't intend to have Miss Mulroney gallivanting around Europe like some jet-set fugitive. Not on my court's record. So the bail was, like, hard denied. She was, like, thrown in the clinker right away. Yeah. They're outside on the steps of the courthouse, and the media is, like, crawling all over them. They're at the precinct. Everyone's calling around trying to find the gun. But then, oh, my God, there's been another fucking shooting. A 44 caliber shooting to the back of the head, parked car, pants down, what the fuck is happening? Jeffries takes that call, reports it to everybody. Boom, there they go. Everybody goes to the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Benson, Stabler, Munch, Jeffries, they're all there. They're all checking out the bullet, and Munch goes, Vanity, thy name is woman. And Jeffries yeah. is like, It's frailty, not vanity, you misogynist. And I'm like, early aughts, you don't appreciate or deserve her. Uh, Yes. Uh, The guy's name is Stanley Brecker. Because he gets a name right away. Fuck you. Mm -hmm. So Miss Caddish. The woman who was in the car wasn't like his girlfriend or anything. It was, or or Mrs. Brecker. It was this lady named Miss Caddish. Yeah. She said he got shot while she was blowing him. And Mm -hmm. it was like super intense. Mm -hmm. And she describes the shooter as having bright eyes with Buddy Holly glasses. Like a psychotic nerd. (laughs) Yeah. But they they also met in the bar. Yeah, they met. Yeah, they met at the bar. But was it at La, La Bar? bar. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't know you were waiting for me. <laughs> like, uh, how, I don't know. How would you? But you did know because you're my best friend. Oh, so, yeah. So then I'm thinking, okay, did they met at the uh, bar? Was it the same bar? Oh my god, is it the waitress doing this? <gasps> right. Uh huh. Is she wearing like a Buddy Holly mask? Or I thought, is there going to be a bunch of copycats because Stephanie's famous? Is like, like a bunch of like blonde oh. women like killing men this way? mm Hmm. Oh, this is the part where they actually put in the wife's name. Oh. The apartment of Stanley and Pauline Brecker. Yes, that's right. I was like, what? Benson and Stabler kindly speak to the dude's bereaved wife. They were really nice about it. And they weren't like, he was getting his rocks off when, you know, they weren't like fucking munch about it. She tells them that he worked in the garment business and they just get a little bit of information while they avoid telling her about what seems like his indiscretions. So they're back at the precinct. Craigan's like, follow the bullet, see if they match. Everybody's just kind of like going over everything again. Because this is fucking insane. There's no luck finding the weapon. Yeah. Then Benson and Stabler come in and they're talking to Craigan and they're like, it's not the wife. Like she's she's bitter, but she's not angry. Yeah. Then there's like this weird scene with Caddish intense blowjob lady yeah and the computer composite guy he's he, like doing a composite sketch on the computer and he's like i love these sometimes i just sit in here and there's a dark room like a fucking weirdo and i make my ideal woman and yeah. she's like to a victim um, he's saying this to a fucking victim yeah they're sitting very i notice how close everyone sits and talks to each other because mm-hmm. they're of, like cheek to cheek yeah, yeah. and i'm like Where's your mask? <laughs> oh, yeah, shit. Don't worry. It's 20 years in the future, motherfuckers. You have no idea. <laughs> Jeffries is talking to Craigan. She had done a deep dive into the past and found 319 shootings with a 44. Yeah. So Craigan calls Briscoe and Homicide, Green and Briscoe. We're back mm. to these guys. Yeah. So he's talking about a case from years ago. Jill Templeton was the only witness back then, and it was a Buddy Holly motherfucker. Mm-hmm. So... Munch and Jeffries go to a gun store. Arthur Pruitt bought black talons, and his description matches the shooter. And it was, like, kind of some bullshit to, like, get to Arthur Pruitt, but Jeffries is, like, a rat-tat-tat on the guy's chest with her warrant. And she's, like, just fucking give me the... Obviously, I brought this. She's, like, I did it pre... Because I knew you were going to be a douche. Yeah. Also, I thought this episode was going to be, like... You know how sometimes they'll have the killer right away, but it's, like, a long, drawn-out thing Mm -hmm. because of, like, their class or whatever? And I thought this was going to be that. But there's, like, a crazy twist and yeah. I just remember having like hard nips this whole time uh, so they're back in the precinct Arthur Pruitt has been in prison he got out he came to New York and they've got his address so then they send like 35 cops everybody in the cast goes to get him he's in a flop house in Chinatown there's a lady smoking at the front desk I can only describe her as future me if she was wearing a <laughs> jean vest it would be a dead <laughs> ringer she points out Pruitt he's sitting on the couch smoking with no glasses on so obviously it's not him <laughs> He asks Benson for her ID and then puts on his damn Buddy Holly glasses. The music starts to swell when that happens. As he like takes his glasses out of his pocket and we're like, let's get it moving. We all know it's him. Yeah. Then they go to his room. And they find a wall. Like all of the cops go to this room. Everybody. (laughs) Yeah. 
It's a tiny room. And they find a wall full of paper clippings of all the shootings. But what's really weird is their newspaper clippings. Mm -hmm. But did they show newspaper clippings with like brain splatter on them and stuff? Because they were like... They used to show some pretty intense shit in the newspaper. Mm. Well, So there's a lineup. All three female witnesses come in separately and immediately are like, it's him. Mm-hmm. It's that guy, like no hesitation. They all point to the same guy. Mm-hmm. So then Green and Briscoe are interrogating him because, so this is a collar for both precincts yeah, for homicide and for sex crimes. So Green and Briscoe are from homicide. So both teams are going to interrogate him. Yeah, Green knows how to give a sickie like him an ego boost over how disgusting the crime scene photos were. So he's like, oh man, I almost lost my lunch. And he was like complimenting him in that way, mm-hmm. trying to get that to make him talk because he knew that he would be proud of them. And then Briscoe kind of chimes in with that too. So then Munch and Jeffries take a turn and <laughs> Munch is going in hard on this guy. Yeah. He keeps like whispering in his ear he's going to kill him. And the guy's like, yeah, and he's like, off me i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna kill you <laughs> yeah and, and jeffries is, is like, like well back off man like obviously doing the bad cop good cop thing yeah or he's like oh you're the bad cop and munch is like yeah i'm fucking the bad cop <laughs> yeah and he's like is this legal munch is like probably not yeah whatever it was stupid so then benson and stabler's turn stabler literally ac slaters him <laughs> and turns a chair around to sit on backwards and have a wrap so they're taking the reasonable <laughs> and cool approach yeah let's talk about the working stiff dean woodruff but he can't get anything out of him but stabler stays level and chill yeah and then they start to praise how good of a scene it was and got him to speak about leaving the girls alone. And Stabler's yeah. like, it was Buddy Holly Glasses is like, gentlemanly. Yeah. And he's like, is, is this a yes that you did it? And he was like, under coercion, it's a yes. Yeah, so he was really annoying. Munch is like, Arthur's been stone- stonewalling us for an hour and then flip-flopped. What's his agenda? I'm like, it's only been an hour and you guys have changed hands that much? You guys are that impatient? But it's been one hour. So they're in the Emmy's office and Munch is hitting on her, hard. you, yeah. like super hard. She hates it. She's not having any of it. She goes on to tell him that Stanley Brecker... I, sorry, I typed in, I laughed at this interaction. I t- <laughs> Stanley Brecker was beat up pretty bad not long before he was killed. So that was just the information that we needed to get. And the rest of it is just Munch being a creep. And he's like, will you ever have dinner with me? And she's like, not while I can still feed myself. A dunk. And then she fucks off. <laughs> so Craigan's back in the old white guy's office. Mm-hmm. And Craigan has to apologize to the Mulroneys. And the, they treat him like a fucking child. Yeah. The two crabby old guys in the balcony from the Muppets. Right? <laughs> Yeah. It's pathetic. It's irritating. Craigan's just trying to do his fucking job to the best of his ability. Nobody wanted to press these people. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I don't care if they have privilege. I'm going after who I think it is. Yeah. But they're like, somebody's going to have to take the heat for this and it'll be painless. So Craigan's like, sorry, wah, wah. And this little rich bitch is like, okay. Mm. Yeah. She's a brat. Regina was actually, sorry, I said that so hard. Um, She actually seemed nice about it. She was like, she was like, thank you. We appreciate it. He seems like a nice man. Mm-hmm. And then Craigan's like, bye. So then he's stomping out of the building. Yeah. No, you do this, please. Oh my God. And then R- Munch runs around the corner to tell Craigan the Emmy found some inconsistencies with Stanley Brecker's autopsy. And Munch tells Craigan about Brecker getting beat up. So then he's putting all this together and he's like, garment biz, mafia goons, big money, racketeering, Stephanie Mulroney killed Dean Woodruff. I'm sure of it. I can feel it. And Craigan's like, I'm not dealing with this. I just like he's really down because he just had to do this apology he, thing. Like, he's threw like, his hands up and walked away. I'm not dealing with this anymore. And Munch is like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and it ends. Yeah, it ends. I don't understand how he gets that. Stephanie, can you explain that to me real quick? What? The end part? I don't get how he went to Stephanie. Okay. What what I gathered from it is they're connected to the Mulroneys at the end of this crime rainbow. Okay. There there is a connection between Stephanie Mulroney and Dean Woodruff. There's also a connection between Stephanie Mulroney and Stanley Tucci. I love him. I know me too. <laughs> um, what's his name again? Brecker. Stanley Brecker. The one that was beat up. Yes. And Stanley Brecker worked in the garment business. The garment business is code in old-timey New York for, like, heavily mafia-run. 
Yeah. All right. So then you've got mafia goons. So who beat this guy up? Mafia. Why? Usually it's because money's owed. Okay. There's racketeering, which is other people are doing it so that schmancy rich people don't have to get their hands dirty. And he's just putting together these connections. All of these things leads back to them. Yeah. But the Kaddish girl, she saw the guy with the glasses too. And that was who was in the car with Brecker. Yeah. That guy might be involved. It doesn't mean that Stephanie's Mulroney's not involved. Just somebody else is taking the heat for it. Hmm. So like did they maybe know that the glasses guy was killing people and then use that should use that? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. Or he's a hitman. He could be a hitman. Because what a hitman would do is just he's shoot the, heat, the yeah. target. He's yeah. not gonna and maybe these blonde women are working for it. Remember the kiddish, kiddish mm-hmm. yeah. lady? She was talking about how she was an actress going out for all this stuff. Mm-hmm. They could have hired her. That's true. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So anyway. I liked when st- when she was like, I'll never forget him. His eyes, the way he, and then Stabler was like, this is an audition. And she's like, fine, it's him. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah, she was cute. True crime chaser. I'm excited. Entitlement. Privilege. White dudes. We're going to learn about Chappaquiddick today. I've never even heard those words together. I know how to spell Chappaquiddick now, and it's um feels is it, good. Is it close to aquatic? Nope. It's got way too many letters. Way more letters than it needs. Hmm. I, don't got... even, I don't even know what it is. Okay. So beyond my usual chaser resources, newspaper articles, interview clippings, books, and stuff like that, I read some stuff, but I got a lot from a documentary that I watched on YouTube. And the link's going to be on our website. It was posted in 2017, but it clearly originated sometime in the 80s. And I couldn't find the date for it, but I loved it. And it was my favorite resource that I had because they interviewed nearly everyone that had anything to do with it. And they all have wicked strong Kennedy accents. So what's Chappaquiddick? Okay. Chappaquiddick Island is off the coast of Massachusetts. It sounds like a fancy, waspy destination, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. It is. It's okay. nicknamed Chappy for fuck's sake. <laughs> it's a ferry ride away from the coast and is part of Edgartown, Massachusetts, which is in Martha's Vineyard. It's just like fucking pleated dockers for days. Okay. So, yeah. That's all you had to say. Yeah. You walk a bridge made out of pleated dockers. <laughs> <laughs> to get to go to the flag football game in crab boil. Is this where the skeet shooting lobster rolls comes in? Oh my god, yes. <laughs> On July 19th, 1969, a black oldmobile jumped a railless bridge and flipped into the water. The car was registered to the senator from Massachusetts, Edward Kennedy. Like the actual Kennedy, Kennedy's, right? Yeah, you know, Ted. Teddy, Teddy yeah. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. It was him. Oh. The car was discovered by fishermen the next morning. Side note, Gabe, there's no way you're not going to find a crime scene at some point with all of your morel hunting and ramp hunting and all of this shit because every time I read anything, who finds this shit? Joggers, hikers, hunters, fishermen. Mm-hmm. So please call me before you call anyone if you find something. It's the only reason why I don't want to go jogging. <laughs> Local police chief Jim Arena was the first man on the scene. The car was submerged in the water upside down. So he dove in and tried to get in the car, but after a few tries was unsuccessful. There's this really defeated looking photo of him soaking wet, sitting on the flipped car in the water. It's so sad and like made me respect him a lot. I should get, I should find that photo and post it. It's really, it's like. No, this uh, is so, this is Ted Kennedy's in there. They don't know who's in there yet. Oh, okay. But it's, it's registered to Ted Kennedy. The car is registered to Ted Kennedy. They don't know who's in the car at this point. So diver and fire rescue captain John Farrar shows up and he's in full scuba gear because he understands what the situation's going to be. And so he's going to go and try and get in there. So once he was in the water, he saw one set of feet inside the car and he was able to pull the person out from the submerged car. It was a woman. Chief Arena had her laying in his lap until a team could get there. She did. We love this guy. Yes, she's dead. Okay. It was 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny. And I want to talk about her because she gets lost in all of this. Mary Jo Kopechny, by all accounts, was an intelligent, hardworking, and motivated woman. She was the only child of her Polish-American parents. Her father was an insurance salesman, and her mother was a homemaker. Mm. Classic. Yeah. She was passionate about the civil rights movement, was heavily inspired by John F. Kennedy's words, ask what you can do for your country, and had a lot of promise politically mm-hmm. and in her career. 
So after graduating, she did a bunch of stuff, but like some key points of what she did was um, she taught shorthand and typing in Montgomery, Alabama. A quote from a former student in Montgomery said, she was a petite strawberry blonde with a pep in her step. She had confidence and zest for life that was intriguing. She was humble and kind and stood firm in her beliefs, tough but fun in the classroom, creating speed challenges, expecting accuracy and rewarding generously. So good teacher. Yeah. In 63, she moved to D.C. Okay. Because she was kind of politically motivated. Yeah. And in 64, Mary Jo joined New York Senator Robert Kennedy's secretarial staff. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. So that's how she got. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. Yeah. So that's how she got like in with the Kennedys. She was a Boston Red Sox fan and played catcher on the Kennedy office softball team. Cute. Like she sounds... I picture her immediately in a league of their own. Yeah. And like with Madonna's like yes! red hair. Yeah. Well, because I've seen a photo of her too. And she does have that hair. Like that wave. Yeah. yeah. We've talked about a league of their own so many times on this. We need to just rewatch it. Yeah. It's been a while. In 1968, she was instrumental and dedicated to Bobby's presidential campaign. We're calling Robert Bobby now. Okay. Yeah. It was at this time that she became one of the boiler room girls. Who are the boiler room girls? Like a secret society? Um, Sure. Like a fun secret society? Not like the movie. Well, what's his face? It was a team of six women who worked as political advisors to Bobby Kennedy. Mm-hmm. The nickname was given because their workspace was a tiny, loud, sweaty, windowless space in Kennedy's campaign headquarters. And I'm like, hey there, hardworking, glass ceiling breaking, loyal team of geniuses. Here's a cute nickname instead of a better workspace. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? You still women after all. <laughs> Mary Jo was devastated by the assassination of Bobby Kennedy during his campaign. She moved on in her career after he was shot and was well on her way to success in the political world because she knew her shit. Mm-hmm. And she had a great reputation and a great resume. But all the Boiler Room girls stayed tight with the Kennedys after that. The night of her death was actually a party in honor of the team of women who had worked on Bobby's campaign. So at the party, there were 12 people, six women, which were all Boiler Room girls, and six dudes. None of the Boiler Room girls were willing to talk about Mary Jo after her death, but many years later, one of them, Rosemary Kehoe, did. She said, quote, She was a red-blooded American girl. She was smart, funny, had a lot of wit, drove around in a cute little Volkswagen bug. She was a nice, lovely girl, dedicated to what we were all dedicated to. Like I said, they all hung out and spent a lot of time with the Kennedys after Bobby died. And there were rumors about the Boiler Room girls basically being a harem for the Kennedy men and their crew. But Rosemary Kehoe fully denies those allegations and said that the relationships weren't like that at all. Of course, that's a rumor. All these people were staying at a hotel in Edgartown, and they took the short ferry ride over to Chappaquiddick Island. They went swimming for the afternoon, and then they all gathered into a rented cottage on the island for a party the night of July 18th. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to the next morning, 10 a.m., July 19th, 1969. Ted Kennedy walks into the police station to report the accident. He had a close associate with him, District State Attorney for the state of Massachusetts, Paul Markham. I just loved everybody's in. Yeah. He walked in. And who do you have with him? Paul Markham. Yeah. That guy was a real piece of work. So the police chief looks at Ted and he's like, holy shit. He's like, sorry about the accident. And Ted goes to the police chief. Thanks. I was driving. So Chief Arena tells Walter Steele, who is the county prosecutor in 1969. And Walter Steele's like, what? No. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, unquote. (laughs) And they felt like, well, this is a big deal. We should see what the district attorney thinks about this. So then they call the district attorney, Edmund Denise, and he told them to just handle it because it sounds like an accident. So they did. And they had Kennedy write his statement. What? So it's like an accident? What do you mean? He wasn't there. I don't. Okay. What? Right. He misspoke. Thanks. I was driving. Yeah. Okay. What? What? And it's 10 in the morning. It's 10 in the morning. His written statement basically said that he and Mary Jo left around 11.15 because they were both tired and he was going to drive her back to the hotel. He took a wrong turn and then flipped off the bridge. Remember, there were no rails on the bridge and there was no lighting. He also said he had no memory of how he got out of the car, but said he had tried to get Mary Jo out. He said he didn't report the accident until 10 hours later because he was in shock, but immediately went to the police when he realized what had happened. This is his statement, okay? When Ted Kennedy is talking to police chief arena, the police chief had already been at the scene, had already cradled Mary Jo in his arms waiting for the coroner to come pick her up. Right. Okay. Because they're all like, what's going on? Trying to figure out and saunters in Ted Kennedy to be like, I was driving. So Walter Steele, county prosecutor, 
was like, oh my God, he was driving. What do I do? I don't want anybody shitting on me because they think I'm unjustly going after a Kennedy. See, right there is the entitlement where it's Mm -hmm. like, I don't want to fuck with my job or how I'm perceived. But he's like, so I reluctantly did my job. Yeah. Right? So he's like, I'm going to do my job no matter what. But I don't want to. Yeah. So the amount of time that he let pass meant that he left the scene after knowingly causing bodily injury. That is a crime. Whoa. Okay? Yeah. So after he gives the statement, Kennedy runs off to his family's property in Hyannisport and told the police chief not to release his statement until his lawyers were able to look it over. Insert what the fuck here. Hyannisport? Hyannisport. Hyannisport. You're not focused on that there's an anus in the middle of that? (laughs) Whoa. <laughs> wow. So. I'm hungry. Not for anus. <laughs> okay. So there's so many things wrong with this. Like, first of all, he just leaves right away, gets to take off. He's like, here's my statement. Bye. I'm going to go to my family's house. Yeah. He told the police chief, the police chief, don't release my statement until my lawyers can look at it. Right. I'm like, okay. So the next day, the media is going bananas right chief arena felt like he was under a ton of pressure nobody's getting back to him like the lawyers aren't calling him back he can't get a hold of anybody in the kennedy camp Mm -hmm. and he was like fuck it and he read the statement to the media who had gathered outside Mm -hmm. this of course didn't calm them down like he had hoped it prompted even more questions and the shit blew up Mm -hmm. so everybody's like why was he out with a young single woman on a late night was he drunk no witnesses were talking kennedy went into hiding and wouldn't speak to anyone until four days later he showed up at mary joe's funeral with a neck brace on and i'm like fuck you Mm -hmm. oh you're gonna love this after the funeral the kennedys came home to go back to Hyannisport. So they're getting off their private plane to go home. And there's all this media waiting for them. NBC reporter Liz Trotter, who is a no-fucks-given badass journalist who did not give a shit about the politics of any of it, mm-hmm. asked a couple of times for a statement. And there's video of it. So I'm like listening to her go, do you have a statement to give? And then puts the mic up. And he's like, not at this time or whatever. Yeah. And she's like, when, when do you plan to give it? And he's like, at the appropriate time. And she's like, when do you think that'll be? You know, just like the shit that a normal journalist would do, like to prompt, just give me something, you know, she's barely pushing it all. He doesn't give an answer through like just 30 seconds. This is like 30 seconds. A Kennedy aide later calls NBC and said that they need to fire her. Hmm. This is this is not the today of today. NBC and Liz were like, fuck you. Whoa. Yeah. This is a completely different area of media. Based on this stuff that I learned, like learning about like the way the media behaved, you couldn't buy them at this time. Yeah. At least it didn't seem so. This was the good old days of media. So Kennedy appeared in court a week after the incident to plead guilty to leaving the scene of an accident after knowingly causing injury. He had worked out a deal before. So like they knew everything that was going to happen before they even walked into the courtroom. It's so so crazy how like if this was anybody else yeah like he wouldn't get to just hide right you know they'd get like warrants and fucking vote you'd be whatever yeah entitled i was just gonna (laughs) whisper entitled (laughs) really yeah so a guilty plea meant that he didn't have to give any evidence in court because he wasn't trying to prove that he didn't do it okay he was then given a two-month suspended sentence and one year probation so a suspended sentence means that he didn't go to jail and if he didn't commit a crime in that time in the two months that he was supposed to be in jail he wouldn't have to go that's what a suspended sentence is okay it's a it's it's uh it's a sentence for rich white people yeah at least that's they're like go home but don't do anything bad then he makes a televised speech this time his speech was written by a team of speech writers in this speech the story evolves into one where he goes back to the cottage and gets two other dudes to help him save Mary Jo. The press was like, fuck you, answer our questions. Yeah. And now there are suspicions of a cover-up. Like, why is the story changing? And there's another issue. There was no autopsy and that shit was messy. The doctor who should have performed it was super sketchy about not having it done. There's like footage of that too. These two journalists like have the doctor who should have performed the autopsy up against a literal wall. Like like mics in their mouth. With mics in his face and they're all, their faces are all very close together. Yeah. And he's like, you can see him pulling his chin back like because he can't back up any further trying to like, pull over any farther <laughs> yeah <laughs> like trying to like blubber out why he didn't do an autopsy so and there was and hit, none of his answers made any sense it didn't like it wasn't even complete sentences okay so what there was no autopsy 
she done? No. So they obviously like murdered her and threw her in the car and then jumped the car. Okay, so listen. Okay, sorry. There's a lot of different theories about... But that's the one. That's right. Well, eventually they do get confirmation that she died from drowning. Oh, okay. Anyway, DA Edmund Denise, the guy who had told police chief Arena and county prosecutor Steele to just handle it, was pressed to do more than he had done, which was nothing, and finally said there would be an inquest into circumstances of the incident. Because everybody's like, this isn't good enough. Six months later, they had the inquest, but banned the press from attending. What? Mm-hmm. Okay, what the fuck? Ted's statement in the inquest combined both of his stories. He said they were tired and they were going back to Edgartown. They took a wrong turn, a right instead of a left on a dirt road that led to the bridge. This is just like him regurgitating the story, but then he kind of combines both things that he had told. The judge in his inquest report was like, wait a minute. I don't believe you. Yeah. For these reasons. One, Ted and Mary Jo apparently Irish goodbye to everyone at the party and nobody knew they were leaving. Yeah. Two, Mary Jo's purse and room key to her hotel room were left at the cottage. Okay. Okay, you're taking her back to the hotel, but she doesn't say goodbye to a cottage full of her friends. Or bring her room key or bring her purse. Yeah. Yeah. Three, the judge doesn't believe his right turn was a mistake because Kennedy was super familiar with the area. Yeah. Like they had just been down that road swimming that day. Right. And four, the judge doesn't believe that Kennedy was trying to go back to the hotel at all. So the question is, what was he doing? So we're like, what? The judge still took no further action. Nobody did. Like the judge is like, huh, I don't believe him. Well, anyway. See you guys later. I'll see you. We'll see you for tennis tomorrow, Teddy. Yeah. So the press got a hold of that too. And we're pissed because the inquest itself was crazy suspect. Here's the reason why. Ted got to go first in the inquest, which was unheard of. And he had basically just given a speech. What he should have done was he should have gone last so that there were questions raised by other people's testimony. Mm -hmm. Because it was done that way, significant parts of his story were never challenged. Right. All right. Here are the basics of the timeline. Ted said it happened before 11.45 p.m. He tried a bunch to save her. He sat on the bank, super tired from his attempts at being a hero, and then walked a mile back to the cottage, passing multiple houses that had their lights on. And he said that he didn't notice. And he also passed the fucking fire station. He got his two buds, Paul Mockham and Joe Goggin. <laughs> you don't know what letters are in those names, do you? No. Paul Markham and Joe Gargan. A bunch of U's. Gargan is his cousin. So then also he went and when he got his two buds, nobody at the party noticed. Now, remember there were 12 people at this party, okay? Yeah, it's not like huge. A third of them are gone. Yeah. Mary Joe, Ted, Joe and Mac yeah. are all gone and nobody notices. Okay. So they all drive back in a rental car that the, these guys had to attempt to save her for 45 minutes. Then they drove Ted to the ferry landing. And then Ted says he swam across to Edgartown and went to his hotel and changed into dry clothes. What? I know. Um, well, the, Okay, so the reason he said what time it was that they were going is because they were trying to catch the last ferry across to mm -hmm. the hotel. Yeah. So, like, the reason he swam is because there weren't any more ferries at this time. Okay. The timeline of this would be at least two hours and 40 minutes. The hotel manager said that he spoke to Kennedy at 2.25 a.m. So, this had to have started before 11.45. Twist? Deputy Sheriff Christopher Huck Look saw Kennedy's car with two people People in it around 12.40 a.m. Mm -hmm. Teddy and her. Let's hit the timeline again really quick. Yeah, mm -hmm. They left the party at 11.15. Mm -hmm. Car goes in the water at 11.45. He tries to save her a bunch. He can't. He runs back to get Joe and Mac. They attempt for 45 minutes. So then they take him to the ferry landing. So that would be like two hours and 40 minutes of solid trying to do shit. And the hotel manager confirmed that he talked to him at 2.25 in the morning. So it all had to line up. All of that. He was very busy during these hours, like mm -hmm. trying to save Mary Jo and being in this accident and all this stuff. Why and how did the deputy sheriff see him in his car with another person at 1240 a.m.? In his timeline, the car was already in the water and he was in the middle of trying to save her with his friends. What's going on? Well, shit. That was never pursued. Wow. So Christopher Look was the deputy sheriff. They called him Huck. 
quote unquote Huck. Yeah. So Obviously. yeah, just a little island deputy sheriff. If he were to have given testimony, if he to have his version of events, it would have totally discredited what Ted and the boys said had happened. Mm-hmm. Ted and the boys. Mm-hmm. And here's another thing: the Boston Globe busted him hard on this detail. Ted said he knew what time it was, like what time this was all happening, because he looked at the clock in the rental car that Mock and Joe had. Yeah. Okay. In an interview I watched, the dude from the Boston Globe goes, Senator Kennedy verified the time of the rescue attempt by his two friends by looking at a car clock that doesn't exist. That rented car that they had on the island does not have a clock in it. (laughs) You're so good at it. I have it all phonetically typed out. (laughs) Clock in it is (laughs) C-L-A-W-K-E-N-E-T. And uh, we went and eyeballed it and was more than satisfied that there was no clock. So much suspicious shit. What the fuck is going on, dude? Yeah. So there's piles of contradictory evidence. And I just find it all fascinating and disturbing. And it's more gross to me because Mary Jo is completely lost in all of it because it it becomes a political scandal. Mm -hmm. That's why when they're talking about like politicizing and everything in the episode that it's like very in tandem with... Chappaquiddick. So a lot of testing has been done since involving cars going into the water and crash testing in general. Mm -hmm. It's speculated that it's near impossible that Ted would have been able to be oriented enough to get out in their particular circumstances. Crash expert Robert Dubois, oh my God. He's done many interviews with thousands of survivors of traumatic car crashes and has found that people either fully remember every detail or none at all. Now, of course, there's exceptions, Mm -hmm. but he just finds it very bizarre that Kennedy says that he remembers trying the door handle and the window handle, but then immediately after doesn't remember how he actually got out of the car. Mm-hmm. Like he has no recollection of how he actually exited the car. So, oh my God, back to the police chief. Chief Jim Arena questions if Ted was in the car at all. Let's go down that road, okay? The morning after at his hotel, Kennedy was chatting with two other guests of the hotel, Mr. and Mrs. Richards. Detective Bernie Flynn, who has the hardest accent of all, retells their statement. By their account, he was calm, relaxed, and dressed to go out for sailing the next day. At the same time, his car was being pulled from the water. So, like, how is he so chill, right? Yeah. Then they say, the Richards, say that his two buds ran up, yanked him away from the couple and rushed him into a room for a few minutes. They seemed very panicked. When they came out, Ted's behavior was dramatically different. They were like, he was kind of rude. You know, like he didn't even say goodbye to them or anything or what, like he was, he just seemed like completely different, super frazzled, freaking out and took off with the two other dudes. Kennedy and the boys, Kennedy and the boys, Ted and the guys, the Kennedy kids. T, Kennedy and the fun bunch pals. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) TK and the bros. (laughs) Kennedy and the boys ran to the ferry landing, maybe to rush to the scene. But he ended up not going to the scene. And instead, when they got to the island, he went to the nearest payphone and called his lawyer, Burke Marshall. All of these names are very white. Mm-hmm. Burke, buddy. Hey, Burke. It's also speculated that he called one of his political aides, Dunn Gifford. Mm-hmm. Dunn, D-U-N. Mm-hmm. Gifford was nearby on Nantucket. Short for, short for Donald, right? <laughs> Yeah. Gifford was nearby on Nantucket Island, so he either had hopped on a single engine plane or he was on a single engine plane. But then they interview the pilot. His name's Wilfred Rock. Jesus fuck. The pilot... Oh, he's awesome, though. You would love this guy. The pilot recounts that Gifford asked him to divert the flight to go over the Dyke Bridge on Chappaquiddick because Ted Kennedy had had an accident. And the pilot's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. (laughs) Gifford then assured Wilfred Rock, the pilot, that Ted Kennedy was okay. He was fine. Mm -hmm. The pilot then said as they passed over the bridge, they saw the tail end of the car sticking out of the water. Dunn Gifford said, oh, God, there goes the Kennedy presidency. Rock also said that they were flying over the site just after 9 a.m. Kennedy had still not contacted the police or Mary Jo's fucking parents, if anyone still has the actual victim on their radar. But remember, he said, I called the police as soon as I realized what had happened. Mm -hmm. No, you didn't. It's still an hour before he even goes to the police station. Mm -hmm. Detective Bernie Flynn says, based on Ted's relationship with his lawyer and how past things were handled, it would make sense for him to call him when he learned of the accident. He says if it were true that 
Ted was in the car, he would have called him at 1, 2 a.m. after the unsuccessful rescue attempts. Yeah. The fact that he called him at 8 a.m. means that's likely when he found out about the accident. Yeah. Ted Kennedy wasn't in the car. Ted Kennedy didn't know about the accident until 8 a.m. that morning. Was he covering for his buddies? Why would he admit to driving? Okay, let's go. There's more. Not a lot more, but there's more. Detective Bernie Flynn's guess is that Ted and Mary Jo left the party around 11, like he said. He took her out because he wanted a banger, okay? Mm -hmm. That's why she didn't take her purse or her keys or say goodbye to anybody because they were like... Sneaking off, all right? Yeah. The next time his car is seen is when Deputy Sheriff Huck saw his car at 1240. When he saw his car, it was only 400 yards from the cottage. Yeah. That sounds like a little fuck break. The cop saw a car pulled over on the side of the road, so he went to see if everything was okay. The driver looked in the rear view, and then the car took off fast. Okay. So Bernie thinks that Ted's out in the middle of the night with a young lady who isn't his wife, Joan. Yeah. Driving under the influence, being stopped by a cop. Yeah. He speculates that Ted got out of the car down the road a ways, told Mary Jo to drive herself. Then if she gets pulled over, she could say that she was alone. He's trying to get out of trouble. Yeah. She doesn't know where she's going. She drives off in the dark, not knowing the area. Exactly. Yeah. Driving a big old sedan when she's used to an adorable little Volkswagen. Yeah. And drove off of the unlit, narrow, railless bridge alone and drowned. Yeah. Okay. Back to Robert Dubois, crash expert. He explains that she didn't sustain the injuries that a passenger in this type of accident would normally have. This documentary had fucking everything. This is confirmed by the embalmer who they had an interview with, David Guay, who said there were no cuts, abrasions, bruises, broken bones, or lacerations on her body. Mm-hmm. The conclusion Dubois draws is that Mary Jo could not have been in the passenger seat and avoided those kinds of injuries. Mm-hmm. All of this would explain the relaxed attitude that Ted Kennedy had that morning and the amount of time that had passed before he reported it. Mm-hmm. Why change the story? Yeah. Change the story because he couldn't explain why he was out there, why he had left her, all of these other things. Like, he had to try to keep his hands clean in the whole thing. So he calls an advisor, these fucking other guys, Dunn Gifford, mm-hmm. Donald, and changing his story would mean that he could be a hero who attempted to rescue this girl to no avail instead of a pussmaster general who made her drive and run away from the cops that weren't even coming for him. Yeah. He has since doubled down on his story being true, and Mock and Joe have always kept tight-lipped about the whole thing. Yeah. There's no one who can testify to the real truth at this point because every everybody's dead. Yeah. The end. Okay. Wow. But the fucked up thing is I'm like looking all of these people up, okay? And it's disheartening to know that there's this many discrepancies in that story being true. Mm-hmm. And like I know that Wikipedia isn't like the best source for like really poignant and hard hitting like specifically correct news Mm -hmm. but it paints a picture that fucking mock and joe were these heroes that unsuccessfully tried so hard to save this girl's life yeah when it's like no they were just lying for a Kennedy. Yeah, for sure. They went and got him and were like, your car isn't in the thing. He's like, fuck. Yeah. How am I going to deal with? Oh, they ran and told him and they're like, your car's in the lake and Mary Jo's in the car. Yeah. And then he's like, oh shit, I had her drive home. What do I do? I'm going to call my lawyer quick. Yeah. Yeah. And then his lawyer's like, "Uh uh-uh, no, don't. Yeah. Don't go there. We're sending a team of old white guys to take care of this. God, you know what he could have done? He could have just been like, yeah, I gave her my car keys because I was tipsy and told her to drive to the hotel by herself and she fucking flew into the river mm-hmm. and i didn't know that's that easy yeah that easy right you didn't even have to say that you guys boned obviously you just say yeah it's, I, I let her use my car but it was probably i mean they probably went over all the scenarios like well because because ted was ted was drunk the night before mm-hmm. he had to have been one well, yeah. because he's like a known hard binge drinker yeah. um after and it's that 1969 yeah and they're like partying and they're at a party she had a blood alcohol point she had like a 0.09 blood alcohol mm-hmm. which is like it would still be considered legal to drive because it was 0.1 at the time yeah but she was still like tipsy as shit yeah. that's that's like <sighs> away from being 0.1 you're tipsy so for sure she's driving in the dark in an unfamiliar car she's like rattled because she thinks the cops are coming after her. Yeah. Th- that's another thing that fucking Flynn says is he probably told her to go back to the party. Go back to the cottage and I'm going to fucking get out of here. Yeah. Or he like sat in the woods and he's like, I'm just going to go back to the hotel. And he swam there. That's not how you would talk. He would say, All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to go back to the hotel and get a put on a robe and 
get some rest because tomorrow we got a lot of sailing to do with. You just turned into Christopher Walken. Mac. <laughs> Mac and Joe and <laughs> Dunn and fucking Bobby. We're all going to go sailing. Oh, Bobby. <laughs> all right. Are we done? Yeah, we're done. All right, love, love you. Bye. I wonder if the dicks were in black and white then. Yeah, I guess we'll never know. <laughs> When somebody unzipped their pants, it turned into the Wizard of Oz when it turns to color. And they called it the Yellow Brick Road. Yeah. I was there. Piss. <laughs> yeah. I know. I do that. <laughs> they call the district a turdney. A turdney. <laughs> Can we sometimes add, the, you know, that classic sound of something breaking like in in Wet Hot American Summer? <laughs> Can we sometimes just add that like pot breaking thing? No, we're not a morning drive time radio fucking show. That's- pew, pew, pew! <laughs> <laughs> it's Top of the Hour! <laughs>